Marchessault slides it around the rim. He's got Eichel, top of the left circle, closing in. He shoots, he scores! Jack Eichel, power play goal! Because one hour isn't enough, we welcome you back for hour number two of the Vegas Golden Knights Insider Show. Watt looks up, taps it back, Dodonov in the middle, he shoots, he scores! Jubilation! Vegas in overtime! Watt sets up Dodonov! Chevrolet Fox Sports Las Vegas Studios and live at lbsportsnetwork.com with your hosts Darren Millard and Ryan Wallace. Hour number two rolling right along on a Tuesday afternoon. Ryan Wallace, Chris Chapman live inside the Finley Chevrolet Fox Sports Las Vegas Studios and so hour number two is going to be as as we've kind of brought up a couple of times it's our time it's our it's our space to breathe a little bit and really get into some of the playoff matchups that are happening right now in the Stanley Cup playoffs dive a little bit deeper and ordinarily we would have an immediate post-mortem on the Florida Panthers but I just didn't want to go there today and, and unfortunately um I feel like we need a little bit of space between the post-mortem um, on the Florida Panthers. So we're going to take a day. We're going to collect our thoughts on a team that scored a bazillion goals in the regular season, and yet when their season was on the line, scored just three and four games against the Tampa Bay Lightning. But what that does afford us is an opportunity to bring in Ben Ghost with the Las Vegas Review Journal to get his thoughts on not just the Stanley Cup playoffs, but also maybe some nuggets if we can pry them out of him on the Golden Knights coaching search. Hey, Ben, how you doing today? Hey, can't complain. Happy to be on. Happy Tuesday. Things are going well. So let's start with the Golden Knights, and then we're going to branch out, I I promise, and get to some of the matchups that we've seen right now uh, in, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. But what are you hearing? What have you heard about where the Golden Knights are at right now? Or have you heard anything about where they're at right now in their search for a new head coach? Yeah, for the most part, I think it's been pretty quiet. They've done a pretty good job about keeping things on the down low. Not only the Golden Knights, I would say, but for the most part, I think just the coaching carousel in general has been pretty kind of laid back so far. Obviously, there's been a lot of nuggets about Barry Trust. We know Elliot Friedman was reported to be interviewed with Winnipeg, plans to interview with Philadelphia, could potentially talk to the Knights and Detroit. But outside of kind of the Barry Trust tour, there hasn't been a whole lot that's gotten out so far. It seems like all these teams are probably, A, waiting for this Barry Trust domino to fall. You don't want to make a move when a guy like that with the resume that he has it's still technically available and still technically on the open market mulling his options. And I also think so far the Knights are kind of living up to the message that general manager Kelly McCrimmon put out at his press conference when he fired Pete DeBoer saying, like, we're not in a rush. We're going to be thorough. This is going to take time. I think so far they're definitely living up to that so far where they haven't exactly appeared to be in a rush to go through this process. And they think, they can take some time to get someone in here because the draft obviously isn't still early July. And even then, how much are you actually consulting your NHL head coach on the junior, Canadian junior prospects that are coming out 
And then, of course, free agency is more about mid-July, which I think you would definitely want a coach around for. So there doesn't appear to be a whole heck of a huge sense of urgency, not only with the Knights, but I would say the NHL kind of coaching carousel in general right now. There are a lot of things that are still out there, and maybe it'll take you know a little bit here to have things start to get settled. Now, when you think about the next coach for the Golden Knights, like there's directions you can go. You can go with a strict player coach that, that has a great relationship and it's a little bit more fun. You can go with a more demanding coach, a, a more by more in the vein of what Pete DeBoer was for this Golden Knights team. Do you have an opinion as to what you think the criteria should be for the Golden Knights' next head coach? Well, things I think, you know, I asked the gentleman who was coming at that press conference whether he wanted someone with, you know, NHL head coaching experience. He said not necessarily. But I think it's hard to imagine that this job won't go to someone who's been around the block before and had success in the past before because I think that's a very tall task if you're asking someone who's never been in that chair to all of a sudden step into this team with all the high-priced talent on the roster with all the expectations that this team is going to enter next season into and expect them to learn on the fly while also navigating what you know almost certainly needs to be a return to the playoffs for this team next year. So I do think experience is going to be a key factor. I'm curious how much in that player-coach direction you mentioned they're going to go exactly what kind of you know necessarily systems they're going to bring in. It's intriguing because while Pete DeBoer was a guy that I think had very you know strict systems and required a lot of detail from his players and had a lot of ideas of how things should happen out there on the ice, in terms of relating to his players, I don't think he was also necessarily that kind of stereotypical, you know, red-faced guy that was always screaming at them all the time mm-hmm. either. He had a little bit of a balance in where I think he had kind of enough of an easygoing personality where he was good at communicating with players, hearing their thoughts. Obviously, anyone who's kind of tried to follow the night's practice schedule at City National Arena the past couple of years knows that they frequently didn't have practices on off days or they would have optional morning skates the day after a full practice. So he wasn't necessarily the most hard-charging guy, even though he had strict systems. So that makes constructing kind of the exact opposite or the exact foil for Pete DeBoer a little bit more challenging, but I'm curious exactly what temperament they do decide to go with. I do think, you know, players have mentioned, obviously, there's a lot of high pressure and high expectations on this roster. Jack Eichel mentioned in his final media interview that, you know, by the end of the season, there were guys kind of gripping the sticks a little bit. So I'm curious if they're going to find a guy that, you know, maybe has a little bit more of the ability to turn the temperature down when it's required and take some of the pressure off these guys' shoulders uh, that they put there. Not that I don't think people were tried to do that or did a good job of that, but maybe there is, you know, more of a player's coach or a guy who has been a former player potentially himself that knows what it's like to be in those shoes and knows maybe the right message to get across there. There's a lot of options for that. There's obviously a lot of options if they want to go more just the veteran kind of coaching lifer approach like Pete DeBoer was. I think the intriguing thing for the Golden Knights is there have probably never been as many experienced coaching options on the market as there are right now. So they're going to have a lot of different roads that they could potentially explore when deciding who their pick is ultimately going to be. 
You know, one of the things I find really interesting about the idea of a new coach is that you've got four years, really, of unparalleled success. And that that's really what it is. The, the first four years in Golden Knights history are really, really going to be difficult to duplicate over the next four years for this Golden Knights team. And yet now you're in a position where you're looking to a new coach and you're going to have to live up to the expectations of the two coaches uh, before you in, in Pete DeBoer and a 650 points percentage in his tenure with the Golden Knights and, and Gerard Gallant winning a Jack Adams and going to the Stanley Cup final in year one. So whoever it ends up being, like you talk about the pressure that's going to be on the players because that's what this organization is expected to do next year. It's rebound, get into the playoffs and challenge for a cup how much external pressure is going to be on the new coach just by virtue of what his predecessors have done with this young franchise oh i think there's going to be a ton of pressure on this new coach and that's another reason why i think it should probably be an experienced guy because if this is a rookie maybe he doesn't know how to handle that pressure as well there's a lot of these experienced coaches that are out there like for instance a barry trust i don't think you know, if they do end up going in that direction, that Barry Trice is ever going to be worried about, you know, pressure or expectations because he obviously has very high expectations and pressure for himself. And he's been around the block in enough high-stress situations to know how to kind of still get his job done through that. So I think that's another kind of feather in the cap of them potentially going that direction. But there's no doubt that obviously, you know, this new coach is going to really have the feeling of they have a significant impact on this roster next season because there is so much talent on this roster. And one of the only things that we know for sure is changing between uh, this past season and this upcoming one is the coach right now. We'll see how much roster turnover there ultimately is. We'll see how much the team ultimately just ends up running as much as it can back. Obviously, the salary cap and the fact that they're over right now is going to necessitate some changes. But as of right now, we're not sure how much is going to be different next year. It's potentially going to be on coaching to be the thing that flips the switch from not only just obviously non-playoff team this year to playoff team next year, to be the guy that flips the switch from you know two-time back-to-back conference finalist to back to the Stanley Cup final because that's ultimately really – where the bar is set for this organization and this group of players right now. So to have it that high, obviously, right away for a new guy coming in is going to be a really tough act to kind of follow up what Pete DeBoer and Gerard Gallant did. So I think it is going to take, you know, an experienced coach, someone who's been around the block, is comfortable in their own shoes and their ability to deliver results to an organization to step up and take this job on. You know, we we heard... um... Kelly McCrimmon in his end of the season remarks make a comment about the the first year. And we heard Bill Foley, when he talked to David Shane, discuss identity. This team lacking or not having that identity that they once had. How much is that going to play? Like, how much is, is there being a aesthetically pleasing product on the ice going to weigh on the decision that they make? Because if I'm making the decision, I want a guy who wins. But it seems like there's kind of this this idea that maybe the team needs to be a little more aesthetically pleasing to watch. I, I don't know if I'm taking that the wrong way, but but how much do you think that 
the, the style of play and, and being an up-tempo team and a fun team is going to, is going to play into that decision. So I do think style of play is going to play in that decision, but I did take those answers a slightly different way where I think when a lot of players were talking in their kind of final media sessions about, I mean, specifically what I think the resounding message was from multiple players was we want to be fast. We want to be physical and we want to be deep. Those are kind of the three themes that got hammered over and over again. And I don't think they were necessarily just saying that because it was fun to play or like fun and engaging for the fans, though that's obviously a side product of that. And I don't think they're mad about that exactly, but it really seemed to come from this confidence of like, when we are that type of team that's fast, that gets on you and that rolls four lines, that's also when we win. And I think that's what they were kind of driving at. Of like, that's the kind of thing that makes us successful. And then when we're successful, just by extension, that's what makes it fun. Now, obviously, I think you know, that kind of description is probably a little bit more pleasing to fans and even the people playing it than you know, a traditional kind of lock it down, potentially go back to the 90s with the neutral zone trap kind of system. But I didn't necessarily... Uh, read it that way. I read it as like, this is what we need to get back to to be at our best because this is what we've had success with in the past and this is what we still think this kind of core group can do to have success in the future. So I think that's going to be you know, a really important question for uh, George McPhee and Kelly McCrimmon when they're conducting these interviews to find out which coach understands that, has a way to apply that you know, in a way that actually makes sense for the players on this roster, because I think that's really what it's about. It's about finding a system that gets these guys bought into playing a style. Not only can they execute, but they feel confident in, they feel good about, because, you know, so much of the time, as much as we can break down X's and O's, whatever system you have, because there's pros and cons to every system, if the guys on your roster believe in it and try to execute it at the highest level, that's really the majority of what it takes to have success. So it'll be interesting to see what, you know, ultimately the choice is and what kind of the coach's message is for how he wants this team to play, because getting that team fully bought in is going to be so, so important for the night moving forward into next season as they try to return to the playoffs. Ben Goats with the Las Vegas Review Journal joining us here to talk a little Golden Knights coaching search. Uh, as well, we're going to talk a little bit about the Stanley Cup playoffs here in just a moment. Now, Ben, I, given everything that you just said, do you have a favorite candidate or do you have a dark horse candidate, uh, a name that you think might come out of nowhere who's really talking about in connection with the Golden Knights uh, for the coaching vacancy? I definitely think there's like some wild cards out there. There's some guys in Europe that are very intriguing. Now, the only thing with that is, is like, do I ultimately think that they're going to end up with this job? Probably not. Um, I know, you know, when I initially posted a story at ReviewJournal.com kind of listing some of the kind of experienced coaching candidates, I got some, you know, reader and Twitter feedback that was like, you know, I'd like to see more exciting up-and-coming names kind of thing, some guys that are kind of off the radar. And as of right now, and I could prove to be very wrong at this, I just don't know if that's ultimately the direction they're going to go. We'll obviously have to see. Mm. Um, in terms of names that obviously stand out, we've talked about uh, Barry Trotz already. A guy like Rick Tockett, I think, is very intriguing, not only because I actually think he's great on TV, and I've 
probably uh, obviously watched him much more than any of these other coaching candidates over the past several weeks while he's constantly on my television <laughs> breaking down the Stanley Cup playoffs. But he's a guy who I think would fit the mold in terms of that style of play that we've been talking about. He's a guy that's obviously designed some very successful power plays in the past, which I would have to imagine would be very appealing to the Knights. He was the architect of the power plays in Pittsburgh when they won back-to-back Stanley Cups. So I think he could definitely be on the radar. Uh, so I'm intrigued what other names pop up after that. Like I said, there's a lot of veteran coaches out there. Since those, like a Paul Maurice uh, get a look. Obviously, he's really close friends with Pete DeBoer, so that might be a little awkward if they end up trying to go that route. But he's a name that's obviously out there. Claude Julian's had a lot of success, had success uh, with Boston, and then, of course, was in Montreal until last year when he got fired before that team made their run to the Stanley Cup uh, final. I mean, a lot of these experienced names I don't think necessarily always get people jazzed up because they've kind of seen them before. But even though they might not be the sexiest names, a lot of these retreads do end up working out. Several of the past Stanley Cup winning teams have been helmed by retread coaches. Obviously not John Cooper with Tampa Bay Lightning, but before that Craig Berube, uh, Mike Sullivan with the Pittsburgh Penguins with a retread coach, Barry Trotz, retread coach, coach with the Washington Capitals. It ha- is a formula that's been proven to work in the NHL, even though I get it always doesn't get people ex- as excited as coming up with that like sneaky dark horse name that they think could really turn into something special. Ryan Craig has survived two coaching regimes with this franchise. He's been here since day one. Does he get an interview, and, and what do you think the chances of maybe his name being on the short list of, of guys that they would potentially hire to, to, to coach this team? I'd be a little bit surprised if they went in that direction, but clearly they think he's a guy on the rise, right? Because obviously we went into that uh, press conference where they're discussing the coaching moves, and obviously it was kind of different for each of the assistant coaches where Steve Spott obviously goes out the door along with Pete DeBoer, which makes sense. They've been together for a very long time, dating all the way back to junior hockey. Ryan McGill, very experienced veteran coach, did a lot of great work with the Knights defensemen their first five years. He also goes out the door. Goaltending coach Mike Rosati has to re-interview for his job whenever they pick the coach. One of the only guys that's safe, of course, is Ryan Craig, which I think tells you how much uh, they think of him. They think of his development as a younger coach because he – pretty much jumped right into the Knights when he was done with his playing career. He helps out the forwards a lot. He helps guys, you know, with face-offs and stuff. He ran the power play by the end of this season. They clearly think a lot of his abilities for him to be one of the only kind of on-ice coaches that's safe. The other one, of course, being Misha Donskov. And even then, he's more of a skills coach, you know, helping guys kind of refine their moves and everything like that compared to a guy like Ryan Craig who's more focused on you know, a lot of working with these guys day to day on system stuff and obviously specifically the power play. Do I think he gets the gig now? Like I said, I would be surprised. Do I think they definitely see a lot of potential in him moving forward? And could I see that at some point down the line? Uh, definitely. I do think it speaks volumes to uh, what they think about Ryan Craig, that with all these staff turnover that they ultimately decided they needed to have this offseason, that he was one of the few guys who they circled and was like, but he needs to stick around. We think that he can still have a role helping this team get back to where we need to be. All right, Ben. So we're going to open it up now. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the 
Stanley Cup playoffs, what we've seen out of the first round, and we're about halfway through the second round right now. And and Darren Millard posed this question in hour number one to both Chapman and I, and I'm curious to get your thought process on it. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask the question two ways. The first way is the way that it was initially posed to me, and the way that I think anybody everybody should answer this question. You have to win. You want to win. Do you have Connor McDavid doing otherworldly things offensively right now? Best player in the world, and he's playing like it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got Andre Vasilevsky, who's nearly unbeatable in closeout games. He has won 10 straight playoff series, and his numbers in his last seven series clinching games are just astronomically good. If you have to win, who are you picking, Ben? Connor McDavid right now, Andre Vasilevsky right now. I got to go with Andre Vasilevsky. Uh, he is just unstoppable right now. He is a machine. He's been so, so good in the postseason, not only this one for his entire career. He has a 925 save percentage in the playoffs in like almost 100 games. It's out of this world. If I have to like win a game, you know, tomorrow or aliens invade the earth or something. I mean, he has to be the number one overall pick to me, just because that's how important goaltending is. And if you can tell me that I'm getting almost like guaranteed on average, a 925 save percentage from one of the best goalies in the game, I just feel so much better about everything else. So I have to go with Vasilevsky. I think he's just that important. These 10 straight postseason series win by the lightning, which is a ridiculous number, by the way. So when Darren asked that, he was not pleased with my answer. He was not pleased with uh, uh, Chapman's answer either because we both went, it's an easy one for Andre Vasilevsky. It's not particularly close. So Darren came up with another question to ask that got the desired response. Who are you more intrigued to watch? Is it Connor McDavid right now doing what he's doing, or is it Andre Vasilevsky just turning in casual 49-save shutouts to eliminate the president trophy winners in, in round number two. Okay, yeah, so that one's the opposite, which is uh, every time Connor <laughs> McDavid takes the ice for the Edmonton Oilers uh, this series, which is a lot, by the way, because he's playing like over 22 mm-hmm. minutes mm-hmm. a game, I cannot stop watching him work. It is unreal what he's doing in the playoffs, specifically against a team in Calgary, which I think a lot of, and I think is one of the best teams in the NHL, and is coached by a really good coach. Daryl Sutter, and they just mm. don't know how to stop this guy. He's number one on every NHL scouting report, and he's got nine points in three games in this series, and he's leading the playoffs. I mean, in points, his like points per game are up there with names like Gretzky and Lemieux, and those guys played in an era where scoring was just so much easier than it is now. It is unreal to watch him work right now, to watch him deke around players as thread passes through seams that you weren't sure we're going to get through. It's crazy watching him work right now, and I'm really excited to see what he does tonight and see if the Oilers can actually like really put a stranglehold on this series because I'm already surprised they're up to one. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit surprised by where the series is at right, right now, and, and that to me I think is the interesting thing in that I didn't have Calgary right as being as trailing in this series i thought that they were the better team but 
the fact of the matter is, like the Edmonton Oilers right now with Connor McDavid, he he's just doing things that are are next level, and and that's been the difference in the series. Are you surprised that one player has made that much of an impact? Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the like I said, the playoffs where scouting reports get drilled down, game plans get so specific. It's surprising to me that it's you know a Daryl Sutter led team of all the coaches is having so much you know of an issue with one player. I mean, the Oilers are sporting five goals a game so far in this series. That's just unbelievable to me. And specifically the way that Connor McDavid has been operating in this series is just unreal. Now, part of that I do think is on the Calgary Flames. I think they've been, you know, way too kind of lax playing him. I think they've been giving him way too much kind of time and space. So far, it reminds me of, you know, one time Pete DeBoer talked about before, you know, an Edmonton Oilers matchup, and he's a guy who, you know, say what you will about the Knights' uh, record against the Oilers this year. It wasn't ideal, but they did hold McDavid and Dreisaitl scoreless for a lot of those matchups. And he's like, you can either give those guys a lot of space and back up, or you can get right up in their face and get aggressive and press on them and hope that that's kind of the way to do it. And the Knights were very good about getting in Connor McDavid's face, trying to stand him up at the blue line and hoping that, you know, with forwards back-checking, the defenseman would be able to kind of aggressively close down angles. And if you kind of made it a full-team effort, you could do some things. I'm not seeing that at all with the Calgary Flames so far. I think they're giving him way too much space at the offensive blue line. I think he's getting the zone way too easily, way too many times. And once he does that, uh, like I said in the last answer, it's just incredible watching him go to work and watching him make magic with the puck on his stick because he's just doing that so, so often this matchup. It's really fun to watch. So let me ask you this question. Are the Carolina Hurricanes ever going to win a game on the road? Uh, Apparently not. Apparently they're just really big into Raleigh, (laughs) North Carolina. That is like the secret sauce to their powers. It's unbelievable how this is going to work out. We're down 2-0 right now. They are very close to on their way to being a 6-0 and at home, 0-5 on the road, which, hey, at least good news for them. They still have a home ice advantage the rest of their this series. So they're potentially set up uh, very well for that to at least advance to the conference finals, and then they would have home ice against the Tampa Bay Lightning in the next round as well. But it's just so nuts to me uh, how this pattern keeps repeating itself and how this – Hurricane team, which I think is very good and I think is deep and has a lot of talented players and is going on this great run despite the fact that, you know, Auntie Ronta, their backup goalie, is in for all these games and he's played very, very well. But the fact that they've been this strong through the postseason I think is impressive and I would like to buy in more on the Carolina Hurricanes. But every single time I watch them play outside of their cozy confines, I start to lose a little bit of belief. So I'm curious, uh, you know, now that it's trending towards there being a game six, whether they're going to be able to reverse the curse at some point. Uh, otherwise, like I said, this like very large nitpick I have with the Hurricanes, which is, you know, you would be nice to win a game on the road at some point, is going to prevent me from like fully buying into them as one of the teams to beat, which based on how they play at home, they absolutely should be. So, 
let me ask you this question in in terms of the Tampa Bay Lightning because I I find this to be really fascinating. Should Tampa get to the Stanley Cup final and they play one of Carolina or New York? Was the hardest series for Tampa round one against Toronto because to me it feels like the path keeps getting easier and easier for the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions. No, I agree with you. I really feel like that. Um, now maybe it starts to look harder if we find out that Braden Point is going to miss potentially this next series as well after missing uh, that entire series against Florida. But it really felt like one that Toronto series and the fact that it was such you know an evenly matched fight with both those teams just trading haymakers really forced the Tampa Bay Lightning to find their game and raise their level of play to such an extreme level that, you know, compared to the Florida Panthers who kind of, you know, didn't exactly inspire a ton of confidence in their win against the Washington Capitals. I think just Tampa was like ready for the fight more than the Panthers were. And because of that, they just absolutely steamrolled over them. So I think Toronto based on obviously how this is playing out, might have been the Lightning's toughest matchup. I also just think that the way that that series played out, where the Lightning had to dig deep, win game six, find a way to win game seven on the road, and did that, which is one of the most impressive aspects of this run to me, which is they did it with defense and shot blocking from guys that should be, you know, very confident in their ability that if they don't block a shot in the playoffs for the rest of their lives, their legacies are already intact. Even Stamkos doesn't need to be, like, staggering to the bench multiple shifts in that series against the Florida Panthers, and he does anyway because that's just kind of what he believes needs to win in the playoffs. And I believe that Toronto Maple Leaf series brought that out of the Lightning. They got to their A game faster. And now that they have it, and now that they have time to rest a little bit too before the third round, I think they're going to be a really difficult out for whoever gets out of that other series. Who would win in a fight, Tony D'Angelo or Gerard Gallant? Oh, Gerard Gallant, not even a question. He's like, he's terrified when you still see him, like, get, like, full face yelling at the end of that last game. Um, I can't remember who made this comment, whether it was TNT or someone on NHL Network that was like, you know, out of the New York Rangers, like, the second toughest guy is probably Gerard Gallant. And I think that's a probably mm-hmm. very factual statement, and I wish I could credit who made that, but I mean, I still would not want to mess with that dude. When he gets like full into it, when he brings all of the emotion, man, he's intimidating. I would hate to be on his bad side if I screwed up a drill or turned a puck over in a bad area out on the ice. But yeah, I don't think Tony D'Angelo wants any of that. If well, I were him, I would just go back to Carolina and just maybe maybe chill out a bit. And don't forget that look. The look he gives you when he when he's when he's angry. You don't you don't want you don't want that stare either because I I've gotten it. No. I I have gotten it. I've been on the wrong side of that and I'm like, uh you're 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 kind of shaking, nervous. It's like, uh okay, please stop looking at me now. Yeah, I yeah, I don't I don't think D'Angelo wants any of that. No, would not recommend. 11 out of 10 would not recommend go into another line of work Tony if this is what it's going to require to keep you around. I would I would feel well clear of the Rangers bench for the next little bit, but let, let some things die down. All right, last one for me, and then we'll open it up to Chapman if he's got one more before we let you get out of here, Ben. Um, you, you 
you, I, I'm sure you saw the play that resulted between Nazem Kadri and Jordan Binnington that forced Jordan Binnington out of the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. I'm sure you saw Nazem Kadri score a hat trick in the in in the game last night. I'm also sure that you saw David Perron try to line Kadri up after scoring his second goal of the game with what would have been a very vicious and violent elbow. Uh, Distill your opinions, your thoughts on Nazem Kadri being targeted based on his reputation by the St. Louis Blues and then the Blues not actually playing hockey and then getting their doors blown off by the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, Good for Nazem Kadri is like my first opinion. Like, look, I know this guy obviously Mm -hmm. has a reputation. I know he often kind of tips us up the line, if not goes over the line. But the play that Jordan Bennington got hurt, I don't think anyone can say there was intent to take Jordan Bennington out for the series on that play. Was it a little bit borderline? Was it obviously a little bit of a tricky situation, fighting with that loose puck in front of the crease? Yes. Was it still a hockey play? Yes. Was it a penalty? Was it something that required supplemental discipline? No. So, like, why are we getting that over our skis about, obviously, if you're the St. Louis Blues? And especially, I hated the way that the Blues kind of came out and approached that after everything that was talked about, about Nazem Kadri um, getting death threats. Obviously, his wife posted some just, like, horrifying, awful messages that they've received on social media since that play. And so in the context of all of that, of what Nazem Kadri was dealing with leading into that game, and then obviously what he experienced during that game, as you alluded to, uh, I think it's pretty great that he went out and scored a hat trick and let his play on the ice. Do the talking for that game. Let his play speak for uh, you know his team in that game. And I think the way that the St. Louis Blues approached that game, and specifically approached Nazem Kadri, I think they ended up with the result they deserved last night. In the last round of the or first round of the playoffs, I should say there were a bunch of teams that were down two to one, came back and won their series. Right now, I'll include the Rangers, and even though they're they're winning tonight, they're down two to one. Calgary's down two to one, and St. Louis is down three to one. Did any of those teams come back and win their series? I still got to say that it's probably Calgary. I like the Flames too much in terms of their depth, you know, especially on defense. I think it's strong. I don't think Jacob Markstrom is going to play this poorly the entire series. Now, maybe he's just exhausted because he played a ton during the regular season. He's played all these playoff games so far. He has not gotten the night off yet. So maybe he's just worn down. But I think if he steps it up a little bit and gets close to the goal that he was in the regular season, I think Daryl Sutter is too good of a defensive coach specifically to allow Connor McDavid to be this otherworldly the rest of the series. Maybe Connor McDavid is still a point per game guy because he's just that good, but is he going to be, you know, a three point a game guy? Uh, I kind of doubt it. So I do think that that's probably the team I would pick. It's a slightly boring pick because Calgary was obviously favored into this series coming in anyway, but I think that they have too much talent, too much structure. Uh, to come away out of this series uh, limping you know, from the onslaught of the Edmonton Oilers. I think they can come back, make it a series tonight, and if they do tie it at 2-2 tonight, I would still bet against them heading off to the conference finals, which if it's them in Colorado, oh my gosh, that would be an incredible conference final. So part of me is just kind of rooting for that as well. All right, great stuff as always, Ben. Hey, uh, enjoy your summer. I'm sure I'm going to bother you at some point here in the next couple of weeks to get back on the program. But as always, you do a great job, and, and thank you so much for taking the time. 
Hey, no problem. Anytime. Happy to do it. That is Ben Ghost with the Las Vegas Review Journal joining us here on the VGK Insider Show. We're back with one-timers next right here on Fox Sports Las Vegas. Maybe a two-on-one. Petrangelo gets it. He shoots. He scores. It's time for one-timers. One-timers. Short-handed goal. Alex Petrangelo. Quick looks at some of the biggest stories of the day on the VGK Insider Show. One-timers brought to you by Paul Powell. More lawyers, less fee. News and notes from around the NHL. Here's one that I thought was interesting. We might spend some time on it. Last night, Rick Tockett, after the Tampa Bay Lightning defeated the Florida Panthers in four games, completed the sweep. Andre Vasilevsky, another shutout victory in a series-clinching game. Rick Tockett put out his Mount Rushmore for goalies. On the Mount Rushmore, Martin Brodeur, Dominic Hasek, Patrick Waugh, and now Andre Vasilevsky. So I pose the question to you, Chapman. Do you have any issue with Rick Tockett's Mount Rushmore? Is there anything you change? Anything you disagree with vehemently? I think it's hard to but argue. Say you. I think it's hard to argue otherwise, and, and I think Vasilevsky has proven that he belongs up there. It's really a head-scratcher when you think about how good this Lightning team has been, and Vasilevsky's only got one Vezina trophy. Victor Hedman's only got one Norris trophy. Like, it's mind-boggling. But Vasilevsky, I when when you sent us that that the tweet from Tockett, my initial thought was, when it's all said and done, would it be out of the question for Vasilevsky to be number one? Would it be out of the question for him to be the greatest goalie of all time? I mean, he he's, he's on the doorstep of... Doing something we haven't seen in in a very very long time, uh, as has been as we've emphasized multiple times today, his goals against average point zero or zero point one four in closeout games in the last seven closeout games he's played. I mean, you mentioned the stat one goal on his last two hundred shots in a closeout game. It, it's that means six of his last seven closeout games have been shutouts, and he's only given up one goal in the other. It's, it's unheard of what this guy is doing. And the way he's able to switch that gear from regular season to postseason, I mean, he's certainly the best goalie I've seen in probably the last 20 years. I, I would not put it past this guy, especially if he wins another cup. That means he would equal Brodeur. That means I, I believe he would have as many. I, I can't remember how many Wah won, but... He's right there with those guys. There, there's zero debate about that. I don't I don't know who you make the argument that would be on there ahead of him. So I don't have an issue with three of the four, and I I, I know you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah I do. I do. Um, we don't have to have that discussion, as, but I know where you're going. As much as I understand everyone wants to focus on the wins, as much as I want to, as much as I understand and, and recognize that Everyone thinks Martin Brodeur is the best goalie that ever played the game. I I don't buy into that. I don't subscribe to that. I think that there are other goalies that were better in their prime than Martin Brodeur was in his prime. Um, you want to talk compiler? That's my hottest take ever. Like To me, Dominic Hasek, Patrick Waugh, no doubters. No doubters. Mount Rushmore for goaltenders in the NHL. Not even debatable, in my opinion. Those are the two best goalies that ever played the game. Now, I think Andre Vasilevsky has a chance, if he continues on this trajectory, to be right there 
with Hashik and Brodeur, uh, with Hashik and Wah. To me, Martin Brodeur is not on their level. Never was on their level. Isn't going to be on their level. So my Mount Rushmore is Hashik, Wah, Vasilevsky, and then it becomes interesting because I, I would make the argument even without the Stanley Cups, Roberto Luongo was better than Martin Brodeur. I think there's a strong case to be made for Roberto Luongo. Strong case to be made for Henrik Lundqvist. Strong case to be made for these guys that unfortunately were never able to win a Stanley Cup. But goaltending, to me, is not only about the championships. I, I, I think the championships... No, no, no. no, no. I, I, I hit the wrong, the wrong button to reply to you. Uh... <laughs> I turned on the wrong microphone. There's no one else in here. But, yeah, the, the championships do have to count for something, though, because I, as much as I feel like Luongo is, is in the discussion for, for maybe top five, I, I, I think that the championships matter, Ryan, and and neither Luongo or or uh, Lundqvist have them. They, they don't have their names on the cup. And I feel like that's a, that's a defining legacy moment for a lot of guys and look I get Luongo didn't play for great teams for a lot of his career I still think it matters I I think that matters championships matter and the way guys perform in the playoffs matters and you know you can you can discount Brodeur and call him a compiler the reality is the guy's got three Stanley Cups and he won a multiple multiple Vezina trophies so I mean Mm -hmm. the, the people who vote on this stuff and the people who, who who decide those things, they disagree with you. And, you know, the, the the fact of the matter is he's got three Stanley Cups, and the Devils probably don't win three without Martin Brodeur. Yeah, I, I, I don't get it. I'll be honest with you, I don't get it. Um, and it's okay. Like, that's fine. To me, they're... There's something about the other two goalies that, or other three goalies that I'm talking about that that I think is just better than Marty Brodeur. And maybe it, it stands to reason that you you want to go and you you want to live with the all-time wins record. You want to live with the fact that he won three Stanley Cups. Like, let me ask you this question: Do you put Mark Andre Fleury in the same ballpark as you put Martin Brodeur? No. Three Stanley Cups. Yeah, you but, don't. But. No, because climbing up the list. What makes them well, different? Well, because what makes them so different? Because for two of those three Stanley Cups, Mark Andre Fleury was the backup. I mean, he, uh, he, he, he helped. A significant he helped portion them. in both of those. He helped them win, right? But but championships he, matter. Yeah, but, right? but like, he wasn't the you guy. Can't take away the fact that he had three Stanley Cups. No, you can't he, take he away was, the fact he was that he only the man team for, for one of those to a Stanley Cup final in year number one. Yeah, he. But in in a season in which he missed twenty five games. So I mean, as, as much as we want to say, yeah, he 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 brought them to the Stanley Cup. The reality is that was that was a team that kind of elevated their play as a whole, and he just happened to be. Not, I shouldn't say he happened to be. I mean, he obviously was a very very big part of them making that final. But he also missed missed a quarter of the season with an injury, and there were other guys who stepped in, and they the team managed to win games and win the Pacific Division. Yeah, I I don't view. Martin Brodeur and Marc-Andre Fleury that differently. I I don't think that there's a, a major degree of difference between the two of them. Yeah, And that I, gives you an idea of why I don't put Martin Brodeur in that elite echelon of goaltenders. This is not something I don't think we're ever going to agree on. <laughs> 
That's the beauty of it. One-timers brought to you by Paul Powell. More lawyers, less fee for today. Tuesday, May 25th. I don't know. I don't have a watch in front 24th, of me. 24th, I think. I might be wrong. It's the 24th. May 24th. There it is. We're back to wrap it up next, catching up with Chapman. You know, Ryan, we didn't really have a chance to talk too much about Nazem Kadri today, but just want to point out there was an incident in Major League Baseball over the weekend involving Josh Donaldson of the Yankees and Tim Anderson of the Chicago White Sox, in which uh, Josh Donaldson referred to Tim Anderson as Jackie. He he said it was a joke, obviously a play on, on Jackie Robinson. Tim Anderson is black. And Anderson and the White Sox took it the wrong way. Well, Yankees coach or manager, Brett Boone, handled it the way I feel like Craig Berube should have handled these, these death threats to Nazem Kadri. He said he he believes that Donaldson was making a joke. However, he also feels that it was inappropriate and he shouldn't have done it. Would that have been so hard for Craig Berube to say the fans should not be making those statements? Come on, guys. Yeah. It's time. It's time to stop this nonsense.